The Queen of Cups, one of everybody's favorite cards, and the very wateriest of them all. She is known as the Queen of the Thrones of the Waters, as well as the Queen of Nymphs and Undines. I keep wanting to say the Queen of Nymphs and Undies. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so um, so this is water of water, the watery part of water. Because of the the sort of um, passive nature of water or the downward flowing qualities, we would expect this to be an inward looking card. And so it is. The cards that express themselves as one element, and by that I mean fire, the card that is fire of fire, water of water, air of air, and earth of earth, to me those are always really potent cards. They seem to best express the energy of the letter of the divine name because they're not, there's not a contradiction. So whereas the Knight of Wands is, you know, the the ultimate Yod, uh, here we have, (laughs) we have, uh, the ultimate Hey Primal. Right. And we'll see that again with the Prince or Knight of Swords and the Page or Princess of Discs. Yeah. The watery qualities of water just seem to emphasize it, you know, it can both absorb and reflect. Mm-hmm. That quality of water as being still. I also wanted to say that, you know, with these pure elementals, those are like the doubles that we have for court cards. Unlike, you know, we can have double, double Mars or double Jupiter or whatever in the decanic minors, but this is where we see the, you know, the purification and power of the element. Yeah, so this card is really all about feminine wisdom. And because it's water and it's associated with the sign of cancer, which is ruled by the moon, the primary thing for these personalities is the lack of separation uh, between self and other, the yeah. ability to connect, there's, and sometimes the ability, the inability not to connect. <laughs> yeah, there's a definite lunar quality to this card, especially. For sure, the psychism, the empathy, uh, the caring. Yeah, that re- reminds me of Cancer's motto, the, the, these two-word mottos that each sign has. Cancer's is, I feel. Yeah, and the occasional moodiness that goes with it. So when we talk about the sequence of the four powers, again, the this one would be to dare or to love. But it's not, whereas we saw with the night, it's the the will to love or the will to dream here it's just the pure love the pure emotion it's water of water it's hay of hay it's it's about the transmission of emotions through this astral force right unceasingly and which is interesting because in terms of the astrology we've got the final decan of gemini and the first two decans of cancer which correspond to the lovers and the chariot. So the lovers is kind of an interesting correlation, the idea that you have to make a almost mental conscious choice in the lovers to choose love. <laughs> it's also interesting because the lovers card has a lot to do about dissolving and mm-hmm. the power in this card combined with cancer so the chariot and the lovers, it's the ability water has to dissolve and, and commingle things. 
Yes. And especially in this card, there's something about, you know, dissolving the boundaries between reality and illusion. Yeah. I, I mean, when you get to the end of Gemini, that is a kind of end of a year uh, in one sense. Like, you know, if you have traditionally the flooding of the Nile with the summer solstice, right? So the end of Gemini is that moment where the summer solstice is contained within this Queen of Cups card. And you have the end of spring and the beginning of summer, uh, timed with originally with the heliacal rising of Sirius and the flooding of the Nile. No longer the case since because of procession, but we have a long tradition we've inherited that includes that, uh, the period between June 11th and July 12th. This area of the sky was the solstice marker back 150 BC or something like that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And you know what's also funny about that handoff between Gemini and Cancer? I always think of it as the sword from the Lady of the Lake. <laughs> you know, that uh, Monty Python yeah, thing yeah, where it's like, yeah. you can't expect to wield supreme executive power just because some watery tart <laughs> tossed the sword at you. <laughs> But that's what that reminds me of, yeah, you know. That's funny. So the the Ten of Swords, the Two of Cups, and the Three of Cups, that's ruin, love, and abundance. So I was thinking about this, um, you know, I write these essays on the Deccans sometimes when, when Austin's posting his Deccanly messages. And uh, so love, ruin, and abundance, that made me think of the poem uh, Love Among the Ruins, which is a Robert Browning poem. And there's this kind of wonderful quality about it where it talks about the the ruins of material conquest, the ruins of ambition, you know, kind of like what you come to in the if you if you go to the logical conclusion of the sword suit. And then despite all of that, in the midst of all of that, he talks about falling in love with someone who, you know, a woman who is there among the ruins. And he concludes, Oh heart. Oh, blood that freezes, blood that burns, earth's returns for whole centuries of folly, noise, and sin. Shut them in with their triumphs and their glories and the rest. Love is best. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So, and that, that quality of shutting it in. I don't know. There's something about cancer, the enclosure, mm -hmm. the sort of like setting aside of, um, and, and protecting of that, which is worth protecting, you know, the tender heart. Yeah. It's almost as if her decans of cancer, the two in, are the enclosure, whereas that 10 of swords, the ruin, that's a disruption of the enclosure. It's yeah. like the, the breaking of the egg. The right. And, and also the idea that like the solstice is the death of the king in some ways, right? Cause it's the right. handoff of the sun to the moon when the moon's hours will be longer than the sun's uh, for the first time. Uh, so the oh, marriage of the Lord and the lady and the, the sacrifice of the Lord. Yeah. And that 10 of swords Deccan is ruled by the sun. Exactly. So it's like the sun kind of piercing that lunar veil that is her, her normal state and, and right. it's disrupting her calm and, and placid meditation. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's definitely an encounter between the principle of the male and the principle of the female here. And you can see that in whatever light you wish. And because it's a sword, swords card, there's always this sense of division. 
yes, the choices that of the sort of the lovers that have to be made. I also think that because she includes, the Queen of Cups includes this Deccan of Ruin, that that makes her, in a sense, a kind of wounded healer. You know, she's coming from this place of destruction and... um and yeah, emotional coming, openness and vulnerability is the solution to mm-hmm. um to this place of you know uh is the healing process from this place of devastation it's a really powerful card uh, the more you look into it her two decans of cancer the two of cups is ruled by venus and she's definitely a very feminine venusian figure the most feminine queen surely yep and the mm-hmm. Three of Cups, which is her card not only as her Deccan, but because if you associate all the threes with queens, the Three of Cups would be her card. So it's another kind of doubling of the Three of Cups as her expression. And the Three of Cups has as its Deccan ruler Mercury, which I think yeah. is really interesting in terms of her being associated with prophecy. Yes, yes, I was thinking that as well. The idea that she is um, a, a seer yeah. and a, a diviner. She is one of our patrons. Yeah. And it's interesting that that's the final decan. So we go from Sun to Venus, Venus to, to Mercury. Mercury. Yep. We go from Gemini to Cancer. Uh, we go from something ruled by Mercury to something ruled by the moon. So there's information coming in, and then at the end there's information going out. What's also interesting is that the Deccan of Cancer she doesn't have is the one ruled by the moon. Oh, that's interesting. Which is kind of strange, you know, because she's so very lunar, yet she doesn't have within her purview the four of cups. So she doesn't have that, that sense of that inner world growing too small. Right. The world is... Large enough to contain everything. Boundless. Yeah, yeah. Boundless. Yeah. So that Deccan, the Four of Cups Deccan belongs to the Prince or Knight of Wands, who is always on the move and restless because he's uh, reached the limits. Yeah. And that, that Four of Cups card is also a card to me of emotional peaks and valleys. Mm-hmm. And so she doesn't seem to have those. She's more even keeled. <laughs> My experience of her in reversal is pretty moody though. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. She can be a real, yeah. But yeah, I mean, in her proper expression. In her proper expression, she's calm and yeah. reflective. But the thing about this card, it's more dependent on dignity mm-hmm. than any other card. And it's because of its reflective qualities. It almost reflects whatever is nearest to it. So a lot can be learned looking at what's near it in a reading because it's, right. it's, it's like the moon going to reflect things. Yeah. Right. The moon we think of as magically as being the body that brings and reflects whatever influences from the other planets to us. It's the agent, it's the transmitter. And she plays that role as well. She's right in the middle. So let's see. So we were talking about threes with her. The third Sephira on the tree of life is Bina, understanding. Bina in Bria, or uh, Hay of Hay. And also there's that connection with the three of cups. The three of every suit is also has a connection to the third Sephira on the tree of life. So we look to that third Sephira to ask, you know, what meaning and what bearing it has on this card. Bina translates as understanding, among other things. But there's also that that need to give form, uh, the need to shape 
or to contain, mm. which we also see in cancer. This card's ability to reflect what's around it also kind of speaks to that ability of water to take any form. It takes the form of its container. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting quality. Um, we associate esoterically with Bina, the fact that it's an endless sea and yet full of the impulse to form sea and sky, much like the womb itself is like an endless sea for what's forming inside it and yet confines at the same time, confines in shapes. Right. And the sea itself, whether it's the Sea of Bina or the sea was said to be the source of all life from which all forms emerged. In terms of the time of the year, just to look back on that a little bit more, um, we said that it contains the summer solstice. And it's the time of the year when things change, that sort of stillness of summer starts to come and all the insects arrive <laughs> for us over here. July 4th, that feeling of like watermelon and insect repellent and sunscreen. This is when it all starts to happen. And that feeling of like, you want to go out and celebrate, but you also kind of just want to stay clean and cool. <laughs> Time of year where you want to seek out water. Let's see, as far as the historical correspondences, they're very, very, very interesting. First of all, this is the Queen of Hearts. The Queen of Hearts has a lot of different associations of her own. Um, first of all, you know, um, there's the, the nursery rhyme we all know, and I'm just going to read it real quick. Although it's really kind of more, it's more about the knave of hearts than the queen of hearts, but let's, let's just go through it. So the queen of hearts, she made some tarts all on a summer's day. Of course, it's a summer's day, right? The knave of hearts, he stole those tarts and took them clean away. The king of hearts called for the tarts and beat the knave full sore. The knave of hearts brought back the tarts and swore he'd steal no more. So queen of hearts, I always think that they're strawberry tarts because of the time of year. So she is represented as uh, someone who has favors to bestow, which is a theme that we see historically throughout the queen of hearts and the queen of cups. She is uh, very much a love interest figure, a femme fatale sometimes, uh, a Marilyn Monroe, sometimes portrayed, alas, as a dumb blonde. Uh, as we know, dumb blondes are almost never really dumb. <laughs> and, and neither of us is a blonde, so I want to be very careful of what I say here. But she, she is the archetypal blonde woman in history. And she's connected to Cleopatra, to Delilah and the Samson and Delilah myth, to Helen of Troy, certainly to Venus. And so she has this quality of being a woman who is so beautiful that she's very dangerous for men. That's interesting because I was going to suggest that who she reminds me of is Circe. Yes, the qualities of seduction are deeply tied to this archetype. Princess Diana used to say that she wanted to be known as a queen of hearts for her people. So there's also an element of tragedy that's associated with it. The historical association for Queen of Hearts is Judith, the Jewish heroine Judith. Now, Judith is a super interesting figure. Judith was a widow, uh, a Jewish widow from the town called Betulia, which kind of means virgin. So that's like interesting right there. So so she was in a town that was being attacked by the Assyrians. So the king is Nebuchadnezzar, biblical figure, and his general 
was Holofernes. I'm not even sure how you say that. But so you have this myth of Judith and Holofernes. So Holofernes was a general who was descending upon this town. And Judith got very pissed off. She realized that she could not get people to rise up against him and defeat him. So she decided to save her people through seduction. She goes to the tent of Holofernes. She makes herself all nice. She feeds him cheese, which is like a hilarious <laughs> detail, That's which funny. is interesting, moon cheese. Uh, but uh, And then once she's gained his trust, she cuts off his head. So, <laughs> which is, I think, you know, very Queen of Swords, actually, but really speaks to the undercurrents of danger and betrayal that go with the card. And if you think of the Queen of Hearts in Alice in Wonderland, what's her signature phrase? Right. Off with their head. Off with their heads. Right. So there's definitely this quality of the ability to do away with men in power. Yeah, like the story of Cersei. Right. Turning... Oh, the men into pigs. Yes, exactly. 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 So, so there's that. And there's also, oh, yes, sometimes associated with the Queen of Hearts was the motto, la foi est perdue, which means the faith is lost. So that's like somebody betraying you. So that's one of the meanings of this card. On the one hand, you have, you know, a woman who is a beautiful woman married to a powerful man, a woman who is interested in your happiness and pleasure who brings you good news. But also, this can be a card of betrayal and deceit, which is something we're also going to see in the prince and knight. And the other interesting myth that is associated with this is the myth of Polixena or Polixena. Uh, the Solobuska deck has Polixena on it. And she was, I believe, the youngest daughter of Priam and Hecuba who came to a bad end because I think it was Achilles who was very deeply attracted to her, whose trust she gained, and who told her about his heel. Oh, and by the way, Polysena, she meets Achilles at a fountain, which is totally apt, right? Water of water. Anyway, so she he tells her his secret about his dodgy heel or his vulnerable heel. She and her brothers get venom and poison an arrow, and that's how he's... Uh, ultimately brought down. In the Solobuska version, there is actually a snake coming out of her cup, which is, mm. you know, there you go. There's that story of the poison. But she comes to bad end because at the end of the war, she is she becomes a sacrifice, sort of like Iphigenia. She's sacrificed in order to provide wind for the sails. Well, she goes forth as a willing sacrifice, the idea being that she feels guilty for what she did to Achilles. And she goes forth as a willing sacrifice to create wind so ships can sail on the ocean. You know, her whole myth is tied into these themes of waves and water and fountains and venom. Um, let's see, I think that's all I've got for history. There's There was kind of a lot. But if you like, we can go right on to Rider Waite Smith. Sure, let's do it. Okay, let's do it. The Queen of Cups, uh, there she is with her closed cup. Yeah, that's really an interesting looking vessel. Maybe I'm, the enclosure is Cancerian. Definitely. And I think at one time we might have posted that picture I took from the cloisters of a cup that could have been the model for this. It was a reliquary. You know, not really something that was meant to hold water, but a relic of something spiritual and saintly. Mm. And I was thinking that like her relationship to this closed cup is interesting because of her psychic qualities that it's almost like she's scrying. Yeah. 
You know, yep. she sees right through it. Yeah. Right? She's looking intently at it. And the handles of it, at one time, they looked like crab claws to me, but looking closer, <laughs> they're, they're angels. They are angels. You can see their wings uh, rising up like claws, and they're facing inward. This is, you know, really speaks to me about her relationship with the mysterious, mm. um, that she has a connection that others don't. It's so interesting. Her dress basically merges with the water. Mm. You know, it's almost like it's flowing up onto her. And her cape is really interesting, too. Yeah. It almost looks like a stained glass depiction of water. It does. And it looks like, you know, the shimmering effect yeah, of exactly. water. Mm -hmm. And the water itself has a really like swirling quality to it. Which is interesting because we kind of associate her with, with still waters and reflections, but here she is at what appears to be a strand or a beach, you know, with pebbles surrounding her. So there's a much more grounded quality to her than we sometimes otherwise see. And her throne is pretty cool. I think those creatures at the top are undines. They have fishtails. Oh, is that true? Yeah, look at the fishtails. Oh, yes, you're right. They are um, very Children above and fish below. They're definitely mer-children. And the, the, and the scallop shell. Scallop shell. And then down below, see the little fish guy holding a fish? <laughs> uh, the fish child holding oh, a fish. Oh, fish child holding a fish. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, you would almost expect to see a crab on here, but yeah, you don't. Yeah, I know it. So wait said of this card, a fair woman, honest, devoted, who will do service to the inquirer, loving intelligence, and hence the gift of vision. So there's a implication that her ability to see is connected to her ability to love, you know, to recognize right. that all things are connected. The power of to love, to dare and to love. Right. Water of water. And that is interesting to me because it makes me think of like, you know, the qualities of empathy, how, you know, sometimes when you're doing readings for people, they don't know where you're getting the information, but a lot of it just comes from being a human being and knowing how they feel, mm -hmm. you know, and that connection of like, there, there really is no difference between me and you, you know, and that's why I understand where you're coming from, because our human experience, no matter how long you've lived or what you've done is basically the same, you experience the same things. Yep. And that's why you can do this work, your intuition connects you because no matter how different your life experience has been, you still went through the same emotional world. It looks as though there's almost um the I'm looking at the land formation behind her throne. It's almost like a cliff. Yeah, it does look like a cliff. You know, it drops off into the sea, like the cliffs of Dover. Well, if you think about like the way her throne is positioned, if this is low tide, eventually the, it's going to be in the middle of the water, right? When it gets to be high tide, just like the king's throne. And she has no feet. Oh, I thought that this part was her foot here oh, but her foot is blue yeah her foot's <laughs> blue <laughs> her foot is water so, yeah, but yeah the other, one's crossed the behind, other one behind there it. should be a foot there and, or, unless and it's you like really see it the ankle unless her ankles are crossed could be but it almost looks like her, she just dissolves away and has no feet right which would be apt not mm. grounded yeah and the fact that she's looking away from us or like you know we have a side view of her face that's very cancerian mm -hmm. you know the sideways movement of the crab not approaching things head on the, you know, the solidity of her throne reminds me of the solidity of the chariot in Rider Waite Smith. And of course, the chariot has that connection to Bina with the starry sky above and then the water below. 
Mm. Now, on the lower right of the card, is that mm-hmm. another fish? I can't really tell what it, that scribble is. It kind of looks like one. It looks, you know, not a great place for a fish. Yeah, it's definitely fish out of water there. Or it, I suppose it could be a clump of seaweed or something, but it has sort of a fish-like shape. And the carob at the base of her throne that's holding a fish with his other hand, is he pointing upward? He is. It kind of looks like an as above, so below kind of gesture, yeah, doesn't like it? He's, like he's saying that the this inspiration is coming from above and, you know, getting channeled down to these lunar yeah. watery plains. And that is also, you know, a shorthand for divination, too. And it's almost as if, you know, that, that lunar realm of Isode, it's connected directly to Keter. Her crown is, it looks like it could be, you know, studded with round gems like pearls, although they're yellow, but it looks as though it has something of that feeling to it. I never think to do a study of the crowns before we before we record, but it would be kind of interesting to look and see the others. Queen of Pentacles has some sort of floral action on hers. Queen of Wands has uh, leaves and flames type thing happening. Yeah, and the Queen of Swords has butterfly crown, which is obvious. So, yeah, her so. crown doesn't look particularly watery. No, it looks solid like that, mm. like that uh, reliquary that she's holding. Yeah, there's mm. almost a visual echo between the two, as if what's in that cup is in her head. Yeah, and she has, it's interesting that she has a glint of red uh, sort of coming out from her garment. You know, it's not all blue and white like you would expect. There's a suggestion of the uh, color of life there. Life peeping out from the waters. I'm trying to see if there's anything else that we can pick up from the imagery of the uh, minors and majors. She could be, you know, she could, there's there's a connection between her and the female figure on the Two of Cups. You could say, you know, there's sort of a visual equivalence there. Also has that sort of looking down and into the cup quality. Mm. And in fact, now that I think about it, when we look at the two of cups, the fact that they're looking at the cups is significant when I compare that to this image. There's the idea that they're looking uh, into their hearts. Yeah. All right. Shall we move on to Thoth? Yep. I think love this card. The, it is beautiful. And I think this might be a good place to read the book tea description because I think she really followed it pretty faithfully. A very beautiful, fair woman, like a crowned queen, seated upon a throne, beneath which is flowing water wherein lotuses are seen. Her general dress is similar to that of the Queen of Wands, but upon her crown, cuirass, and buskins is seen an ibis with opened wings. Beside her is the same bird whereon her hand rests. She holds a cup similar to that of the apprentice adeptus whence a crayfish issues. Her Mm. face is dreamy. She holds a lotus in the hand that is resting upon the ibis. Mm. And you see all these elements pretty clearly in the Thoth card, which is unusual. That's unusual. That's not always what happens. It's not always the case. Yeah. I was just flipping through looking for the high priestess because I always feel like it has some similar um, qualities in terms of the projected geometry. It definitely does. The priestess being the card of the moon is also shown as a great cup. Right. And that's almost echoed in the queen of cups, that Mm cup-like shape. Right above the, the right at the top, there is a, a great parabola. And both cards show these waves of the lunar astral force or astral light rippling outward. Absolutely. Which makes sense because, you know, the high priestess is the card of the moon and the queen of cups is cancer ruled by the moon. So to see these 
parallels is not surprising at all. And you see, you know, there's a reflection of that lunar light in the water. It's, it's, mm. Again, there's that as above, so below kind of reflection going on. Right. And I think Crowley even refers to these these waves in the card as the astral light of Isode, which reminds me, this is this is really interesting. So you know how when we did the Ten of Cups episode, I mentioned that book, The Well at the World's End? Yeah. Well, yeah. that author, William Morris, has a connection to another author called... Uh, George MacDonald? Yes, so he's a book, fairy tale author, right? He's a fairy tale author and yeah. he lived in William Morris's house. He ended up uh, buying the house I wrote down the name. What was the name of it? Kelmscott House, which it was formerly the house of William Morris. So there's a connection there, but anyway, George MacDonald, he was a, a Scottish minister and fantasy author mm-hmm. and he also influenced Tolkien, CS Lewis, he was the mentor of Lewis Carroll. Wow. Which brings in the Queen of Hearts kind of thing. Small world, right? He, and uh, he influenced, um, so C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, Madeline LeEngel, all these fantasy authors were very inspired by George MacDonald. And mm-hmm. his book, uh, Lilith, is really appropriate to this card. As a matter of fact, Crowley, in his um, list of recommended reading, he mentions this book and he says that it's a good introduction to the astral and a superb tale of magic. This is another book that I've had on my bookshelf for as long as I can remember. Mm-hmm. And I've always associated it with that other one, The Well at the World's End. And now I know why, because they lived in the same house, which I didn't <laughs> always know. But yeah. I always, in my mind, connected, the connected two. those two. So anyway, this story it's about a guy who goes through a magic mirror. And again, it's the first depiction in, in tales of the magic mirror. Just like Alice in Wonderland or yep. through the looking yep. glass. And he right. was, he was a mentor of Lewis Carroll. So this, you can see how yeah. these ideas evolve, but they started with him. So he goes through a magic mirror and he ends up in this really otherworldly place, um, where the, it's like a parallel world where it's almost like a, a death realm where there's all these people asleep and they're, it's like they're dead, but they're not. They're only sleeping. And it's really kind of weird and spooky. There's a whole thing that he goes through in this, in this other world mm-hmm. of the magic mirror. But when he awakens at the end of the book, he's unsure if he's dreaming that he's awake. So I think this book, Lilith, is a good, um, a good one for this card. And Crowley himself recommends it as a way to learn about the astral realm. Right. So that's Lilith by George, George MacDonald. MacDonald. You can actually, I think you can get all of George MacDonald's works on Kindle for 99 cents. The whole, all of them. He's got a few others. Yeah. He's got a few others yeah. too, but this is the one that reminds me of this card. Yeah. So I really like that idea of the Queen of Wands as a portal or a magic mirror herself. And it's interesting the way that she's depicted. You can't see her face really. It's just barely there through the mm, veil. Yeah, this is through true. the veil of light. This is true of both her and the Queen of Discs that you cannot see the face well. Uh, the mm. Queen of Discs, you can't see it at all. She's completely turned away. Um, only in the Queen of Swords and the Queen of Wands, you can see their faces, but only the Queen of Swords has open eyes. I think we talked about that a little bit in terms of Crowley's decision to have her have open eyes or pupils. But uh, but this queen, you can just glimpse her through her veils. And I think there's an anima quality 
to her, you know, again, the projection, the projection of the ideal woman onto her as well. There's something about that lunar light as can create some uh, distortion qualities. Yes. The difference between memory and reality or desire and memory. And uh, I think I read it described as a distortion in the mundus imaginalis. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. if you look at the waters that she's gazing into below... We talked in the last card about these descriptions, the Golden Dawn descriptions of the types of water. Mm-hmm. Well, the water for cancer, it said eddies of swirling water, a hmm. force that renders powerful. And it does, there's some definite water swirling going on there. Yes, yes. <laughs> there's definitely some action in the water, uh, ripples maybe. Yeah, um, ripples. Mm-hmm. Almost like the ripples in consciousness. Or the uh, waves of sleep. What kind of cup is she holding? I have real trouble making that out. It looks like a shell to me. It does look like a shell. It's a strange shape. Um, it looks like one of those oh, con- yes. conch, conch shells. You can see the spiral at the end of it, but it's yep. almost like it's on a stand or something because there's like a little thing underneath yeah, her like hand. Yeah, it's like a conch on a stand. And then it's reflected. Uh, you can see the spirals in the water below. So um, again, there's that refractive or fractal quality. Then we have the, oh yeah, and any shell creature is, is kind of a reference to cancer as well, the crab. Mm-hmm. Also because, you know, it makes me think of the fact that if you hold a shell up to your ear, you'll hear the ocean. Yeah. You know, because of those qualities. Yep. Turning within. Mm-hmm. She has the three lotuses. Is there a crayfish coming out of her conch shell? I think so. I think I so. It looks like it, doesn't it? There, yep. Yeah, and that's from the book T description. And then, so the three lotuses. There's three for Bina and uh, three of cups. Although one of them is in her hand, and then there's two in the waters. And the fact that there's two in the waters reminds me of her shadow dick in mm-hmm. Gemini, right? The du- duality. Because everything else in the water is a reflection, but the lotuses are real. And then, of course... The ibis. The ibis, which is so great. Emblem of Thoth. Right, so that Another lunar god. It's another lunar god and a reference to her divinatory powers. Yes. Um, The bird of Hermes Thoth, or Mercury, is an analog for the ability to see beyond. The heron, if it's a heron, it could be, it's probably an ibis, but I've also seen references to it as a, as a heron, is a snake killer. So again, we have this like anti-snake <laughs> quality to the water courts, except for the prince, prince yeah. who is a snake. And the heron has a real meditative quality to it, the way it stands so still in the pools of water. On one foot. Yeah. yeah. And any... Anything that... One foot like the hanged man. Yes, exactly. That's something we probably should have brought in for all of them. But yeah, that connection to elemental water. Any animal that kills a snake is considered to have Christ-like qualities because it was, you know, Christ versus Satan in the form of the snake. This definitely has a sacrificial quality of spiritual love. Uh, what is it that he says about her? He says she is the perfect agent and patient, able to receive and transmit everything without herself being affected thereby. So that reminds me of the fact we've got the Mercury ruled Deccan at the beginning and then Mercury and Cancer at the end, this ability to receive and transmit uh, freely as a diviner. I think Crowley calls the lotus in her hand that of Isis, the great mother. Yes. And there's a real maternal quality to her being hay of hay and water of water, the, the primal hay, the, you know, the mother of all. Yeah, because, you know, 
on the one hand, she cares, but also on the other hand, because of her mirror-like qualities, people see themselves in her. So, you know, they... There's a quality of like, not only does she care about you, but you see your own image reflected in, in her gaze. So that's an incredibly attractive power emotionally. Which reminds me of, uh, the geomantic figure for her, which is populous, right. which is of the moon and cancer and is about people. Yes. And a crowd. And that's her ability to reflect everyone's image that she comes in contact, reflect it back. Exactly. So, so she actually has two. She has populace for the waxing moon and then via for the waning moon. And via is, you know, is kind of a bad geomantic figure except for travel. So there's that quality of traveling, uh, the mercurial quality of going between realms as well as the, all of the people that she reflects in populace. And we can bring in the hexagram. Oh, yes. The uh, 58th one, uh, Joyous. I'm not sure. Uh, Dway. 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 Mm-hmm. Joyous. Mm-hmm. That trigram of water is called Dway. And interestingly, when they translate it into modern Chinese, it's called Zi. And Zi is, is the beginning of my first name. That's the, that same character, the one that means swamp. So I'm a swamp creature. <laughs> swamp thing. Yeah. My my name translates to something like something fragrant from a swamp. <laughs> wow. <laughs> In a nice way it's supposed to be. But but you know, there you go. So I always think that I was destined to make perfume. <laughs> but um anyway, so so Dway water over water trigram or swamp over swamp trigram. I guess it means what I have for it is um, joyous and to entertain or talk with friends and to give encouragement. Oh, yes. There was a quality of both giving and taking with it. There's exchange. Yeah. Right. Right. Which kind of speaks to that reflectiveness, showing people what they need to see or want to see. (laughs) And I also saw something about there has to be a quality of perseverance with it, that perseverance brings reward over time. So there's a continuity, a watery continuity to the um, joy. So the two other hexagrams that are associated with the 58th uh, are the 37th, which is said to be the hidden influence. And it's talks about family support, which I thought was appropriate in her, yeah. her maternal role. Yeah. And then the underlying cause one is 52, which is about keeping still and meditating. Again, very also, appropriate. You know, she and her daughter share these really psychic qualities, whereas her husband and her son are more creative artistic types. Yeah. You know, yep. They are the queen and the, and the princess or page. They are mystics. Yeah. All right. How about your card? So beautiful. Love this card. So we have the queen gazing into the mirror of water, the still or only slightly rippling pool beneath her. As in the Thoth card, it's got a cup with a crayfish claw bringing in the the moon and lunar qualities. From the two of cups, we have the bees. So it's interesting because... That brings in the star myth, which we'll get into, which that area of the sky has the beehive cluster. So we can talk a little bit about that in that section. But the two of cups with the bees, it's also about there's a real sweetness to this card in many yeah. ways. You know, that that sweetness of love and nurturing and, and caring. As it even brings in, you know, bees also bring in a little bit of the three of cups with the, the abundance, you know. Yeah. Bees are 
definitely a symbol of abundance and the, the nectar and the honey and the flow. And they bring in your lover's card as well, the honeycomb of the lover's yep. card from Gemini, yep. her final decan. Yep. Also, mm -hmm. Gemini, there's the two lotuses, the twin lotuses, just like just like in the Thoth card. And it also, there's a lot of twinning in this card. So that's bringing in the Gemini decan, the twin bees, the twin lotuses. Mm -hmm. Then we have from the Ten of Swords, the background, those clouds in the background that kind of uh, mm -hmm. lit up by the moon. It's it's an echo of the Ten of Swords card, These the clouds that are scudding over the sun in that card. Oh, cool. So those are cirrus clouds. And in that list that we talked about with the different types of waters and different types of air, the one for Gemini mentions cirrus clouds. Does it? So – these broken clouds, this broken light of the moon is suggestive of the, the disruption of the Ten of Swords ruin that kind of can interfere with her complete concentration. Right. And you also, when you see cloud formations like this, that indicates a change of weather, which is very lunar, the, the waxing yeah. and waning and changeable yep. nature. So she's steady, but she's also changing. Yep. And she's got the, uh, ibis, uh, as her crest with open wings as, as oh, in book T. Right. And, uh, the ibis not only being, as we mentioned, the bird of Thoth, but it's also a form of a stork, which is maternal mm -hmm. imagery, you know, mm -hmm. and a sacrificial Christian image as well. That brings right. the babies. And it's also, um, symbolic of lunar forces and cycles of time. So there's that. And, what she's wearing, mm. the the way that the dress pools around her is both suggestive of water, but it's also like enclosing her. So there's right. this uh, idea of enclosure as in cancer. She's wearing a teardrop or a, a droplet of water as her third over her third eye, which again shows the inner reflectiveness. Right, right. And emotion being, you know, a tear. Every time I see what she's wearing, I get fabric lust. <laughs> I know. It's Don't you just so want beautiful. a big bolt of that it watered like, silk or something? Yeah, yeah, it looks like crisp silk um, yep. of the, in that beautiful color. <laughs> you just know it would have a little iridescent quality. Yep. Maybe a dupioni or something like yeah, that. That's yeah, what I, that's what I was going yeah. for, too. Right? That's how yeah. I pictured it. You exactly. can just see the way it's holding itself up a little bit. Yep. That it has that crispness to it. Very expensive. <laughs> yeah, that much of it too. I mean, that's it's like nine yards of it. Here. Exactly. It's like a circle skirt. You have to have like a giant piece right. of material. <laughs> and the, uh, the cup and the lotuses form a three in yep. the way that they, um, in, in the way that the three lotuses and the thoth do. And also the reflection of her arms sort of creates this unbroken circle effect. Yeah, the reflection mm -hmm. with the reflection, it is like a circle. Yeah, that reminds me uh what Crowley says about his queen, the almost unbroken images of the image mm. which she represents. Is it live or is it memorized? <laughs> so we can talk a little about the star myths, which yeah. is really cool in terms of this card. So as I mentioned, in this area of the sky is a space object, a star cluster or nebula called the Beehive Cluster. M44 is its other name, or it's called, how do you pronounce this word? P-R-A-E-S-E-P-E. -E -E. I guess so. I guess in Latin it would be Prisepe, but Prisepe. still, I'm not familiar yeah, with that Yeah, so word. anyway, Prisepe, it means mm -hmm. the manger. Mm -hmm. So again, we have this imagery of a, of a cradle of life, the or origins of life. That star cluster is associated with floods, 
Um, you mentioned the solstice marker of the Nile flooding. Well, this was another, uh, right. star cluster that when you see these in the sky, they're, they're kind of fuzzy already. But when they are dimmer, it, rain was predicted. The Mesopotamians called this area of the sky the gateway of incarnation. Oh. Which again, that's, you know, the cradle of life symbolism. Right. The Egyptians associated this area with the beetle Kefri. Mm -hmm. So, again, that brings in both cancer and the moon. Right, right. Uh, it and was the, the journey place, through night. Yep, mm -hmm. and this was the place where the beetle Kefra rises from the waters of Nu, the source of all life. And it was said to be a portal where the, at that time, that was where the sun was uh, born out of so it was considered a portal of all life where human souls would enter the earth realm. Right. So again, that quality of the portal or magic mirror. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, mm -hmm. the, both the portal, the magic mirror and the gateway of the womb. Right. You know? And I hadn't really thought made this connection before, but her middle deck and Venus and Cancer, the mirror being one of the weapons of Venus. Yep. So, but also in this area are those Gemini, uh, Castor and Pollux stars are there. Mm -hmm. um, so they were twins. Castor was mortal and Pollux was immortal. I don't know how that exactly works, but right. I think, I think Zeus impregnated a woman who was married to someone else and maybe there was some one son. Became... Not really the way it works, but okay. Yeah, yeah exactly. I don't, I don't know exactly yeah. how that happened, but one was, uh, Pollux was immortal and, and Castor was not and he ended up being killed and mm -hmm. his brother, his twin brother was so, so distraught that, you know, he made a bargain where he would, they would switch. One right. would get to be alive, um, and they would switch and one would go down to Hades mm -hmm. and they would take turns over who got to be immortal and who got to be dead. Yes. <laughs> right. Right. And Man. so he was, they were, they were the children of, uh, Leda and Zeus in his form of a swan. And they were, uh, patron gods of seafarers, Castor and Pollux. So mm -hmm. they were invoked by sailors to mm -hmm. protect them. These are the same twins that we're talking about with Gemini. Yes. Always, right? Yep. Yeah. The mm -hmm. Dioscuri. This area of the sky in Chinese mythology, this area of Gemini, interestingly enough, has all these different constellations, but every one of them has to do with water. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. Yeah. So even even though these twins are Gemini, they were saints of the sea. You know, mm -hmm. they were they were sea sailors. Yeah, patrons. they were sailors' patrons. So there's a, there's definitely a lot of water uh, mythology in this area. So you have the scudding clouds from the ten, you have the bees from the two, you have uh, lotuses from lotuses the three. from the three, and the um, yeah, and you can see the full moon. Yeah. When you think of this, what time of day do you think of it being? That's a good question. I mean, I think of it as being one of those between times mm -hmm. because there's both the moon, the moon is out, but you see that kind of warm glow at the horizon. So it could be either sunrise or sunset, yeah, which it, it would have to be. And for, those, those mm -hmm. liminal times are also associated with the veil parting and, yes. and things of that nature. So it's definitely one of those between times, those mysterious right. portals. Thresholds of the day and night. And of course, the colors are blue colors as they are yep. throughout the cup suits. Yeah, all the blue and blue greens. 
Mm-hmm. Plus with the, I tried to give the clouds that really lunar glow. That, yes. That distinct color that's somewhere between yellow and green and, and gray. It's hard to quite mm-hmm. describe. It's very. They're lit in a different way from day, uh, solar daylight, clouds. Yeah. Almost, yeah. A, almost like glow in the dark, like that luminescence yeah. effect we were talking about in the last episode. Right. It's that kind of color. There's definitely. I think there's definitely a breeze implied here, both mm. in the water and in the in the sky. Mm. Okay. Um, all right. So how does she show up for you? Yeah. Um, you know, I don't really get her a lot, interestingly enough. Mm. I do sometimes, but not mm-hmm. a lot. When she does show up, I tend to make sure to look at what surrounds her mm-hmm. because I know that she's reflecting something Yeah. or reflecting on something. And sometimes yeah. it's helpful to look at what else is around it's it's definitely time to to go within and seek those inner inner realms and mm-hmm. listen for that voice and to feel rather than to think for sure what do you have in cancer anything no a I, mom I, I, I don't oh yeah my mother is is a cancer but i have nothing in my chart that is cancerian I have a very strong Venus in Cancer, so I get this an absolute ton. I get the Queen of Cups all the time. You know what's really funny that you talked about the sweetness of this card? Because I get her for desserty things, like making pie and ice cream and tarts and yogurt and stuff. <laughs> and, and, and strawberry tarts. Yes. Oh, and I made paneer one time. Yeah, it's just like the dairy part of it's hilarious because of that Judith Holofernes cheese thing. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I could be and seduced the by cheese made of green as well. Cheese. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My heart has been won over by cheese a few times. <laughs> I used to not eat cheese at all. I, I used to hate it. I still don't eat cheddar, but things have changed. I also call her the queen of laundry because I sometimes get her on Monday when I'm doing the laundry. I get her a lot for swimming, of course, ponds, things like that. And then, you know what? I got her... When we were at Reader's Studio, and remember there was the day that Benabel had her presentation and there was like sort of a group working. And I don't know about you, but I had this huge sense of like psychic energy in the room. Yeah. There. And I'm not like ordinarily, I'm something of a leadhead. I'm not ordinarily like super sensitive to this stuff. But this time, and I had Queen of Cups that day, it was just like tangible, right? Definitely on in occasions when I've, had that kind of access to other people's emotions, I will get this card. Um, and also, I've also had it for some of my more successful parenting days with my daughter, who is also cancer. She's in cancer one. So yeah, so the those times when I'm able to really like empathize and be more gentle, nurturing as a parent, which is not every day. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Because I see this card also like in terms of some sort of dialectic process where you're looking at someone else's point of view and integrating it with your own. For sure. And just uh, being able to empathize and understand from that point of view. Yeah, to love. Yeah. All right. So did we make it? I think we made it to the... I think we did. (laughs) All right. So so themes that we've talked about, uh, we've talked about her as water of water, of course. Reception and reflection of the pool. Her lunar symbols and qualities. We've talked about some mysterious prophetesses like Cersei. Yes. Mysterious and slightly dangerous. Femme Fatales, Cleopatra, Delilah, Helen of Troy, Princess Diana, as well as 
the fatally seductive Judith and Holofernes, um, her sword being borrowed from the sword of the lovers, perhaps <laughs> the Gemini aspects of this card, Gemini into cancer, love among the ruins and the lady of the lake with her power <laughs> conferring sword. <laughs> We talked a little bit about the book Lilith by George MacDonald and the astral realms. Those portals that occurred in literature. Yeah, the magic, magic mirrors, mirrors that you pass through into the world of dreams. We talked about Populus and Via. The waning and waxing moon and the ability to communicate and to reflect her mercurial as well as lunar qualities. And Cancer's ability to feel. The queen of hearts. Off with their heads. <laughs> we talked about the beehive cluster and the constellation called the manger, the cradle of life, and Kephra arising from the waters of Nu, the source of all life. Mm -hmm. And we talked about Castor and Pollux, the twins of Leda, mortal and immortal, which were also referred to by some cultures, those two stars, as two sprouting plants. Uh, we talked about uh, Polyxena the sacrificial daughter of Troy and her um, myth of seduction and betrayal. We talked about enclosures. We talked about the ibis or heron uh, of divination and foreknowledge. The bird of Thoth and the stork of motherhood. Um, we talked about the anima mundi mm -hmm. and feminine wisdom. The empath, the intuition, the role of the medium. And the Mundus Imaginalis. We talked about the hexagram Dway, or Joy, uh, water over water, or swamp over swamp. Uh, the qualities of giving and receiving and exchange. Desire and memory. Purity and patience. And blonde goddesses. <laughs> okay. Wow. There was a lot in this card. I My knew goodness. there would be. Yeah. Yeah, it was bound to happen. She's a powerful card. She really is. Okay, well, thank you for going on this interior journey into the Queen of Cups and her magic and mysteries. This is a important card for everyone in tarot and a card that we all relate to as readers, I think. So um, I hope you've learned something and enjoyed this episode. We'll be back next time with the Knight or Prince of Cups. <laughs>